And you're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, UK radio host Nick Charles joins us. We also chat with trans advocate and community health director Teddy Cook. And performer Bradley Storer joins us. 3CR. Well, Nick Charles is a UK radio host, originally from Trinidad and Tobago. And I chatted with Nick this week after he'd come off air at Gorgeous FM. Good. I don't even know what time it is in your country, but I'm going to say good morning, good afternoon, good night, whatever time anyone is listening. How are you? I'm great. You've just come off air at the wonderful Gorgeous FM. Tell us about your show. I have. Um, so I have been covering. So Gorgeous FM is a LGBTQ plus um, station in Birmingham. And uh, I have been covering Breakfast Day for the last five weeks um, for my friend James. And it has been the most amazing thing because I've never done live radio before. So it was a very massive game changer for me. So I was like, oh, my God. So it's my last week. And then I am going to just have like a little break off the radio airways for a while. And of course, it's Pride Month over there in summer. Well, I hope we we get to have a Pride. Um, yeah, it is Pride Month, um, which is all is always also um a big thing for me because I always like to because people have this weird idea that Pride is just about you know rainbows and slapping a rainbow and it's all colorful. But I during Pride, I always do the history into why we have a Pride. I think that's really important. Um, and so the last couple since Pride started the Pride Month, I've just been like doing a lot of like reaching out to charities to see how I could help here and there. Um, the summer in the UK is actually a really lovely day today. Like it's really nice. Um, I don't know what's gonna happen. Um, because we're meant to be coming out of like our little lockdown, that what uh, we've been in since a while now. So we're meant to be going having a bit of freedom on the twenty first, like dancing the clubs and stuff, but. I think that is going to be put on hold until July. So hopefully, but the Pride celebrations have been moved further down the line. So I know where I live in Manchester, their Pride is in September. And so is, no, the end of August. And then other Prides have moved. London and other places like Birmingham have moved to like September. So it is a bit on hold, but of course, I'm still going to enjoy myself no matter what, what time Pride is. Absolutely. Tell us about what lockdown's been like for you in the UK. Oh my goodness. You know what, James? It's been it's been a ride. I could honestly say it's been an absolute ride. Um, I think the first lockdown, I was like, okay, because I was um I was living with my my old flatmate, um, Lee. And um we had bought like all the gym stuff and we were like, right, we could do this, yada yada yada. And then when the second lockdown came, I was just like, I have had enough of this. And I was literally losing my head, losing my mind. But I just kind of keep focusing. Um, and then something happened in the second lockdown. I um, I got I got um, ex- I got invited to do like um, a training for um, Gadio Radio, which is another station in uh, Manchester, another LGBTQ plus station. And the, it was my first time like doing like radio stuff and um. From since there, I've just been, you know, busy doing, I put a podcast out in, in lockdown, which just turned a year. Um, so lockdown for me in the UK has been all right. I know a lot of people have really struggled with their mental health and stuff, but I feel like all the charities and stuff that's been really helpful has been, you know, on the front line, like mind and stuff. So I've been like, kind of, I've been all right. Um, the first one... Because we're like in lockdown seven. I think we're in lockdown seven now, to be fair. We've had so much. So I've kind of lost count, but it's been it's been a ride. So I'm kind of, it's nice to see the back of it now, at least. 
And people over there must know so many people who have got COVID. I mean, it's been quite rampant in the UK, hasn't it? Yeah, it has been. Like, um, I think the closest it got to me was I lost um one, my great aunt a couple of weeks ago to COVID. And that was like, really, that's when it really like hit home. Like I, I was seeing all the people, you know, people who had COVID and people who had passed away, but it never got as close as it, as it did. And that's when reality really hits in that this is really, really like scary. And um, it was one of those things where I, um, I think I, the second I got a notification to get my vaccine, I was in that, I was in that line. I was first to get, I was not making any joke. Cause um, I think the most frustrating thing for me is because I, um, I sometimes um, struggle with my anxiety when it comes to wearing a face mask. So I have to like really deal with my breathing really well and stuff because I just panic. But um, there's been a lot of people who have been like against against the lockdown and against like wearing face masks and just think to yourself, just abide by the rules so we could just have a normal life again. But um, it has really been rampant. It's weird because like they had closed the borders for so long. And then they were like, oh, let's open it back. And then we had like this this influx of COVID again. And we were like, no, not again. So um, it's been, uh, it's really been a roller coaster of fuel, emotion, everything. It's just been mad. And I guess radio has been a really great way for you to kind of, you know, empower yourself during the pandemic. Yeah, you know what? You're right. Um, yeah, because you know what's interesting, James? I literally, um, I... Uh, I wanted to be in radio for like seven years. So, I, you know, during the Summer Olympics a few years back in London, when I first moved to the UK, um, I really wanted to do radio. So I like was Googling stuff and then I got involved with like a radio station in London, East London Radio. There were there are a community radio station and I was doing like a show there called Pop Trash. And um, Pop Trash was just me like t- talking about like songs and, you know, really trashy music and stuff. And it was really lovely. And then I had to move from London up north because it's cheaper to live because London is expensive. It's a lovely city, but it's very expensive. And um, so I moved up to uh, Manchester and um, I literally never really saw myself doing radio anymore. So for me to have got the opportunity to get in back into radio seven years later and literally really enjoy it. And now like, you know, headlining a breakfast show. And I don't know if you ever done breakfast, James. It's hard. Breakfast is not easy. I have done breakfast. You really need to be on your toes, don't you? Yeah. It's like, it's, it's, I feel like it's, um, like you need to know, like, because radio audiences are very different to like your drive time shows and your midday shows because you're waking people up every morning. You have, you have to, and it's like, if you're tired, you have to, you know, you have to push this energy out that you really have to find in yourself. And I, so where I live, I live, uh, so Gorgeous is in um, Wolverhampton, which is like in the Midlands. And I live further north in Liverpool. So I have to get like the train at like 5.25 every single morning because I don't drive. So, and there's, it's an hour away from Liverpool to the Midlands. So I have to, I get into Wolverhampton at like half six in the morning. And then the show is at seven. So I have half an hour to like get a coffee, read the news, get ready for the weather. And I was like, oh my God. So I literally prep myself. So what I do is the night before, I and I'm in bed at like I'm in bed at nine o'clock and I'm and to be honest James I am not a morning person at all so I've really empowered myself in the last couple of weeks doing doing radio in lockdown it's been mental and what are some of the gay newsworthy issues over there at the moment in the UK that you're covering 
so on general on the morning i like to see what's going on with like the lives of like our trans community i want to see what's going on with like inclusion diversity because I, I feel like me because i have a voice to talk about stuff and that uh, is very that i feel connected with like body dysmorphia diversity inclusion so i'm always like on Google or on the socials, checking to see what's going on in the news. Like I'm checking Attitude, I'm checking Pink News, I'm checking different LGBTQ plus website just to see like what's the news. Because I feel like when I feel like a lot of stories are not covered on so on radio stations. I know a lot, a lot like they do have like LGBTQ plus news, but I I like to like really zone in to see. And I feel like I've been trying to like really you know have a voice for the for the trans community because i know like um they're they, they are they're they're not really they're not really spoke up spoken out about a lot on in news and stuff and i feel like i i'm so i'm always like championing different news and you know just trying to you know make our community aware about more stuff that they probably missed in the news or they probably didn't see on social because they're busy like you know googling the latest um music video from britney spears or something so it's um it's been nice to just talk about some about different things that i feel people probably missed in the bigger world news media sphere of course, you're not afraid to speak out about issues. You mentioned Attitude magazine before you featured in Attitude talking yeah. about body dysmorphia. What can you tell us about your journey there? Oh, my God. You know what, James? I'll be honest. When I did this interview late, earlier this year, I didn't really expect the impact to you know be like this because I was just telling my truth. And for me, I have always struggled a lot with like how I look and um, my body, my weight and stuff like that, because I grew up in a really like, I grew up in a community that was really like athletic. So I was the least athletic person ever under the sun and everyone was into sports and stuff. And because I was more into like really, because I'm an, I, I am a massive nerd. So I was very techie from a young age. So I wasn't very active and stuff. And, you know, um, I kind of like gain weight. And then when no one puberty hits, you go through that stage and you lose weight and stuff. And then as I get older, I just realized I struggled. And I, because every single time I will look at the news or look at the TV or look at different like publications, it's always like a skinny or someone with abs or someone who was you know what not like me and it really like put me in a place where I was just like really really depressed and down and sad and I think the worst place for it is when you when you when you come out and you enter into the LGBTQ plus community the like gays could be so like um I wouldn't say harsh but it could be very picky when it comes to what they think is ideal and how they and we see it on social media all the time like you will see someone who you know has all the muscles and, and this is not me like saying that this 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 isn't a great body type but I'm just saying that it's more and more you see that people prefer on socials and stuff like that they prefer someone who's more you know has abs and muscles and then the boys who are bigger and has like thick thighs and bigger muscles and chest they're kind of like seen only as oh a daddy or stuff like that and it just for me is like that really really injects more dysmorphia into someone because i think we us we have been so subjected to only seeing certain types of um gay gay men and straight men on publications and on television and on shows where they're always like you know the hot button stuff and i was just like sick and tired so um, I spoke out about how I felt and about my own journey and it really, really, 
resonate with so many people. And I think it was for me, it really was a moment where I had to stop and think I didn't realize I could, you know, have this impact. And it was a little bit, it was, it was amazing, but it was also overwhelming because I, because for me, I, 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 I never realized that I had that much power to, you know, say something and it'd be heard and people, people, you know, resonate. I was, I think for me, the moment that it really touched my heart is when I saw Sam Smith follow me on Instagram and then Emma Nike and then Ollie from years and years and loads of the RuPaul girls followed me and they, you know, reached out and said, you know, your story was really like, it was really um, an amazing thing. And for me, that was such a moment because I, I'm just like, you know, this, this, this guy doing like radio and stuff and had a, a, and usually when Attitude Magazine puts out spreads like those, it's usually a smaller like story, but I opened the page and there was a four page spread of my message and my story and, you know, about my coming out. And, and for me, it, it really, it really came full circle when I, you know, I had my mom calling me and saying, I read your story and I didn't realize that this is how you felt. And, um, it was, it was great, but as I'm also really glad that the message has been felt. And I know for a fact, there's so many people out there that might have body dysmorphia and they, they might have the best body in the world, but they might still feel it. So for me to have been that little bit of like, um, someone who was someone that you think someone could relate to, it really was something that I, I think I went to bed really happy about the other day. And it's great that you've become a role model too, especially for uh, so many marginalized people in the community. Yeah, definitely. Because as well as you, like usually you don't really without song and like terrible. It's just it's just in my in my own in my own like um, vision and my seeing stuff. I don't feel like I've never really seen like um like a black gay person on a magazine talking about talking about their body and stuff. So for me to have you know been that boy, it was it was amazing, and I feel like like if you take color out of it like a lot of people resonated with that so and i think it was even more it was more um the impact was more felt by the um by you know black and black gays and people of color because they they was like oh okay we have this issue too and someone is talking about it and for me that was like okay this is this is good and i i think it was it was so good to you know i wouldn't say to be well i wouldn't say it was it, how do I say this? I don't, it was nice for my community to really like, you know, come together and say, okay, this is good. Someone's talking about it. But then it was reached to even my straight friends who, you know, who are bodybuilders reached out and said, Nick, I read your story. And, you know, I felt that way. And I was like, you know, this is good. So even though this was amplified in an a LGBTQ plus magazine, it was felt by every other, everybody else. And that, really is like you know something that to feel proud of because you know like usually like our community we could be you know very subjected to a lot of things that you know we are so used to seeing everybody else um you know on magazines like you know like gay celebrities so when someone who is just like me an everyday regular person is you know taken off the streets and it was interesting because i didn't i i got like um attitude reached out to me on my instagram and I, and I was, to me, that was like, this was like surreal because now social media is like a CV, a resume in reality. They're like, oh, we seen you and we think you, you'd be great for this feature. And I was like, okay, great. So now that I know what my power is, now I have to really, you know, 
speak out more about things like this and i really want to get involved with more charities and stuff and really you know do the work because i feel like now that i have said my piece and i've seen the impact what do i do next kind of thing nick charles thank you so much for talking to me today on 3cr it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much no worries james take care of yourself and i'm sure you will um i'm sure i'll see you soon around hopefully you'll be come across in the uk when um it's free to do so <laughs> While Teddy Cook is the Acting Director of Community Health at ACON and the Vice President of the Australian Professional Association for Trans Health, and I chatted with him about One Nation's Education Parental Rights Bill in New South Wales. Oh look, the words that come to mind are diabolical, to be honest, and not, not just for trans people who are the primary target of this particular piece of legislation, but for all young people, certainly anyone who would like to be able to attend school and be supported to be who they are, uh, are at risk of being positioned as an ideology or just not existing at all. Um, and that's not a situation that we want in any kind of school in this country, I think. Of course, the New South Wales Parliament's had an inquiry into Latham's bill. I understand he chaired the committee of the inquiry. You actually spoke at it. What was their experience like? Uh, it was, I was joined by, there were 42 of us who were called up to give evidence based on the various submissions that had been made into the inquiry. Uh, and so I was, I was joined by a, a whole range of different people. Interestingly, most of the submissions that were made were to, were really against the bill, but the majority of people who were invited to give evidence were for the bill, um, which I guess kind of reflects the, the kind of nature of this committee and who it's been chaired by. But I was the only trans person who was giving evidence, which for me isn't unusual. I'm truly often the only trans person in a room, but uh, the response has been huge. The response has been much bigger than I was expecting um, by the broader community. Um, but in the moment, uh, it was a, quite a surreal experience speaking to a number of politicians, and particularly Mr Latham, who seems very, very committed to removing people just like me from social life, from public life and certainly from our school systems. So it's it was it's always an interesting experience being in conversation with someone who would like to think that you don't exist. Um, but what I found was uh, that because my lived expertise and lived experience doesn't really create much space um, for people to argue because it's difficult to tell someone they don't exist <laughs> when, when they're there. Um, so uh, my experience, I was expecting, to be honest, to be uh, really grilled and I, and I just wasn't. Um, so that was fine. That was great. I was happy with that. Um, but afterwards, uh, the, 
it, it was just a, a truly explosive response. And um, it was really heartening, to be honest, to see that so many people, cis and trans, were, were I guess, quite moved or appreciative of the words that I had to say um, in my opening statement. It was a whole hour of back and forth with Mr Latham and others in the committee. And, uh, yeah, it was it's a situation that doesn't feel unusual for me, but it probably should. Um, I've been at this work for quite a long time, Um, generally not front and centre, um, but this particular moment has certainly pushed me to be a bit more visible and a bit more out there. Um, and I'm proud to be able to truly use every part of my privilege to be able to further the visibility and the rights for the rest of my community. But then the, the answer really to, um, you know, what, what was it like? Well, it was surreal and strange and my hope into the future is that there is no longer just one trans person in these rooms. How did Mark Latham react when you made the comment, we deserve the dignity of being known? Um, my read at the time and after um, well, certainly was that um, the committee had nothing to argue with um, about that particular point. Um, and he he did, i got to say, um, keep his views quite close to his chest, I think, and not surprising. Um, and so the way that I was spoken to, I don't think it's particularly reflective of uh, particularly Mr Latham's views, personal views, um, about people like me. So um, I don't know if it registered that that being known means being held and affirmed and having place. And um, and I suppose that's what I was trying to get at, that we, we've always been here and we've always existed um, and we're certainly not going anywhere. We are already in every school across the country with varying degrees of support and harassment and violence that many of our young people are experiencing at school. And... You know, so we do deserve the dignity of being known, and increasingly we are being known. Um, and with that comes a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of and a lot of myth and a lot of fear. But really, when people get to know a trans person, it's pretty quick to realise that we are just like everybody else, just like everybody else, and just like everybody else, we have. Uh, we have the right to be exactly who we are. And that's it. Where is the bill at now in the New South Wales Parliament? Um, right now, they'll be going through all of the evidence that was submitted. They'll be adjudicating around their decision. And uh, I'm, I'm expecting that um, a report and, and set of recommendations to the government will be tabled probably around July. So we've got another month. Um, I am expecting that the committee may recommend some version of this bill go forward, um, which troubles me greatly. But um, my my absolute hope is that um, 
that the recommendations, the report and the bill itself are promptly put in the bin. What public comments has the New South Wales Premier made about the bill? Uh, I don't think um, I don't think the Premier has said one thing about the bill. Uh, I I don't think um, I don't think any of the major parties have said anything about the bill at all. Uh, it's being kept very quiet. I don't understand why. Um, my hope is that it, it will be stared down and binned. Um, and that can only happen with as many people as possible reaching out to their MP and applying pressure because this bill cannot go anywhere other than the bin, truly. It is, I think, one of the worst pieces of legislation, one of the most dangerous and harmful pieces of legislation perhaps that this country has seen in a very, very long time. Um, it's not just about trans people, it's about all of us, not just about trans kids but all kids. Um, and certainly... When the, when the rights of the parents are very important and parental primacy is, is certainly very important and parents are responsible for a good chunk of a child's development but not all of a child's development, thankfully. Um, but there are a group of parents who have been left out of this conversation and that's parents who have trans kids and they have lots to say about this bill. They have lots to say about the harm that will happen to their kids Um and I, I certainly would like to focus on the rights of parents who have kids, trans kids, the primacy of parents who have trans kids and the absolute right of the child to be able to access an education that is safe and affirming. Because I tell you what, like I said at the committee, and it is backed up by a ton of evidence that when a trans young person, whether that is a binary kid or a non-binary kid is able to be exactly who they are at school, is able to pee at the place where they need to pee, is able to be recognised and feel safe, they do better at school and they go on to do better in life. Um, They are more engaged in their education, much more committed or, you know, participating in their education and they just do better, and it is better for their school, and it is better for their um, for other students to have gender diverse kids. It's really important for all people to recognise that certainly gender diversity has existed forever, and has a place in school. I, you know, I just think that's terribly important that we get very real about how the world is, not necessarily the world that would have us all. You know, just have us all so constrained when the reality is much richer, much more expansive and much more wonderful. Absolutely. And this legislation really attacks human rights, doesn't it? And uh, really kind of, you know, attacks, as you said, rainbow families and uh, really makes them into a kind of like a second class status almost, doesn't it? Exactly. Exactly. Um, You know, parents of queer and trans kids are mostly, for the most part, often are cis and heterosexual um, and having rainbow babies or are part of a rainbow family and having, you know, lots of rainbow families keep having cis and heterosexual kids, but, you know, um, that's allowed to. But parents who have trans kids are often heavily stigmatised, have nowhere, feel like they have nowhere to go, um, don't have access to information and they certainly aren't getting as much information as they perhaps could be from school systems. 
that are, you know, either completely ignoring that trans people exist, trans kids exist, or are trying to do different things, but really we need a full, transparent, uh, affirming environment where young people are free to be who they are. And that's that's the end of the story, really, that when a young person is freely able to express who they are, it's better for them and better for all. You're listening to an interview with Teddy Cook on 3CRs in your face. There's a really regressive industrial relations component to this bill as well, isn't there? Like it really makes it impossible for trans and gender diverse teachers to teach. Well, absolutely. If any teacher, cis or trans, talks about uh, trans people, talks about trans issues, tries to support a trans kid, wants to be affirmed at work, they could totally be sacked. Absolutely be sacked, um, removed, uh, you know, and, and imagine that in our society where someone could be sacked based on a characteristic that is, mind you, protected, that is a protected attribute. Um, it is very likely that there are significant components of this bill that are not constitutional, that do not hold up against federal anti-discrimination law. Um, but you know, this is a regressive um, and very clear attack on some of Australia's most minoritised people, and we've got to do better than that. It's also a two-pronged attack, isn't it? I understand there's also a religious freedom uh, mm. bill in New South Wales as well that's also hugely damaging if passed. Yes, it's, you know, the gift that keeps on giving is the New South Wales Parliament at the moment, um, and, and also certainly thanks to Mr Latham. Um, this is another one of the One Nation bills. So we've got, you know, Pauline Hanson having a great time in the New South Wales Parliament. But uh, this particular bill goes even further than the federal attempt at a religious discriminations bill. Uh, it enshrines in law that uh, people who are queer or trans, um, women, cis and trans, people of colour, other people of faith can be targeted, vilified harassed, discriminated against, all in the name of um, a person's belief. And uh, I, I feel very worried about this particular bill. It is, a, again, a set of regressive ideological views that are not based in reality and, and certainly are out of step with what the majority of the Australian public want. There's been media reports that the uh, New South Wales government is looking at ramming through Parliament the Religious Freedom Bill before the end of the year. What are your sources telling you? Um, it is very possible. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, and it, really, we should never, we should not be taking our eyes off the New South Wales Parliament at all. It is. Um, as as there are many MPs in the New South Wales government that are absolute allies to LGBTQ populations, understand the needs of trans people and communities and are strong and supportive allies, i.e. representing their constituents appropriately, uh, there is a, a number of very dangerous um, parliamentarians who would who would 
you know, I think like nothing else than to just remove the rainbow from life, truly. Um, so being conscious and being awake and aware of what's happening in New South Wales at the moment is really important for everybody, truly. Um, so we'll see. We'll see what happens in July. Um, the recommendations uh, from the committee inquiry into the Religious Freedoms Bill did recommend um, that the legislation go forward with some adjustments, but we'll, I'll be really interested to see what happens when the education bill is tabled as well. And, um, but I mean, there have been a number of uh, pieces of legislation passed recently. One which we should be very concerned about is the mandatory disease testing bill that is completely non-science based, absolutely not evidence informed where somebody who simply spits at, um, you know, a a frontline kind of worker would be forced to have a HIV test, which is desperately stigmatising and not at all in line with public health efforts. And certainly we know that HIV is not transmitted in that way. (laughs) Um, So if that bill can be passed, then anything else can be passed and, and, and none of that is acceptable. You spoke at the Kill the Bills rally in Sydney on Saturday. What was that experience like? Um, I have never spoken at a rally. I've been to plenty, um, but uh, standing up in front of a big group of my my community and other people is a bit nerve-wracking for me. I'm bizarrely kind of a bit more comfy (laughs) in – I'll happily talk to thousands of people, um, but – not usually from the steps of Sydney Town Hall. Um, And it was a really wonderful experience. There were so many people, so many people. Um, And we did a really amazing march that kind of snaked its way through to um, Macquarie Street, New South Wales Parliament. Um, It was, you know, I I spoke for five minutes and was joined, I was joined by um, Penny Sharp, MLC from the Labor Party, and Jenny Leong, MP from the Greens, um, and, you know, a 78er. It was, and, of course, Reverend Josephine Inkpen, who is the Reverend and Head of the Uniting Church in Pitt Street in the city. She's a trans woman and came in her full outfit with, like, a trans flag um, ribbon thing. You can tell I'm not particularly religious, but she was wearing full priestly outfits and spoke beautifully and so powerfully about how important trans people are and how important trans people are to faith communities. Um, And I I just loved it. I loved it. It was beautiful seeing all the signs. It was great seeing so many families there. I even saw some signs that were laminated, which was just next level. I was very impressed and very inspired by all the people with a great chance. It was was really beautiful and very affirming, and I felt like the community was rising up. in support of the trans community, and and that was lovely to feel. And so wonderful, as you mentioned, to see the 78 as part of this community action. Mm, Big time. And, um, you know, they spoke to, uh, you know, how, of course, how regressive these bills are, but but how important it is for the rainbow community that is absolutely a human rights movement, how important it is to stand up and alongside trans people. And that was so beautiful to hear 
so beautiful to hear when our um, community stalwarts and icons stand up and say no. When trans people are being left behind or when trans people are being targeted, we all need to stand up. Um, and, and I just really love that. And I just really would support all of our allies to keep standing up and keep being loud about how important it is that we keep talking about trans people that we keep coming together around trans issues and that we get educated and try to break those myths. A great place to start, I've got to say, and it's a little plug, is a platform called TransHub. And I would really encourage all listeners to go and spend time with TransHub. Uh, TransHub.org.au, it will give you so much that you need to know about the trans experience and trans people and how to be great allies. And it really sounds like Pauline Hanson and Mark Latham need to check it out. Sounds like they really need to see that beautiful community unity that was on display on Saturday in Sydney. They do. They really do. I agree. And that was T. Cook.
Nina Simone there. You're listening to 3CR. Community Power Radio. We are not the cheese. We live behind the scenes. Power Radio. Yeah, this is 3CR, your radio. Donate to 3CR's Radiothon. Call now, 9419 8377 or visit 3CR.org.au. Absolutely. Please support 3CR during our June Radiothon. Go to 3cr.org.au to make a donation. Well, Bradley Storer is a cabaret performer and actor who recently starred in Misfit Toys play Early Days with Law Burns. And I chatted with Bradley this week. Oh, gosh, we've had... Had our debut season, which was wonderful. Uh, we were very lucky. We had the first season in the end of February, which oh, it was very interesting because it occurred just after our last snap lockdown. If you can remember the five-day one we had, we were sweating bullets at the time because it happened, yeah, just the week before, and then we opened early days along with uh, Darby's other piece, Dad Jeans, the very next week. So we were crossing our fingers that we were going to be able to make it happen. So we were very excited we could at the Motley Bear House. Um, beautiful season, sold out, uh, wonderful audiences, just all around beautiful experience. I was so happy. Um, and then, yeah, since then, it's been uh, right after finishing early days, I think was when we, air quotes, normal here back in the theatre industry where things had started to tentatively open back up and started returning to a semblance of normality. And then, yeah, Tell us about the emotional intensity of, of early days. Oh, that was very, in- that's a very interesting question. Um, because the piece deals with some very intense topics, for example, we talked about um, mental illness and mental health along with intimate partner violence. Um, on the surface, that seems very, very in- intense, of course. Um, and the, the piece itself was... I, I like to think it was a lighthearted romantic comedy that also happened to deal with some very heavy issues and some very heavy realities. Um, but, but as an actor doing it, it was I've, uh, entirely supported by the wonderful creative team and the, my wonderful acting partner, Law Burns. So I felt entirely safe during the entire process and very supported. Um, so it was, but it was a joy to do. And then I've, I had people come up and t- ask me afterwards. It just it must be so emotionally exhausting, and like, which is you know fairly reasonable to ask with in such a work. But I was just said was I just said, oh, actually no, I feel f- after I do it, I actually feel fine. It doesn't, even though I do have some lived experiences which do intersect with some of the experience of the character I play. Um, I wasn't directly drawing on those at any point. So in, in fact, I was just using an exercise in imagination, which is. For me, in this process, it was easy to just put it down after I come off stage and then just go out and be myself. So for me, it was a joy. It was just a joy for me. <laughs> of course, Early Days was a two-person play. Tell us about the incredible connection that oh. you had on stage with Law Burns. <laughs> with Law Burns. Oh, um, yes, it was. But I believe as we, but I think Laura and I have both told you, we actually had never met in person before the end of lockdown last year when we finally met in person for one of our first early days rehearsals. Um, at that point, we'd had a couple of months of script development via Zoom and rehearsals online. So we'd had but a chance to get to know each other a bit better and things like that. But yeah, when we met each other for early days rehearsals, it was the first time. Um, and so 
it was interesting to go on this journey about two people falling in love um, with someone who was essentially just meeting in person for the first time. So it was a wonderful chance to get to know Law as a person as well and also be able to follow the journey of these two characters that we were playing. Um, yes, as an actor, Laura is so so wonderful, so b- responsive and so amazing to act with in a scene. Um, and so... B- getting to play with them in this but in the uh, in the work along with our wonderful director Brooke Murray um was just but it was a wonderful experience um yes and so we but we you know got it we were very supportive of each other we were uh, got each other because we both knew how intense this play was we were there trying to lift each other up and support each other all the time um so it was really it was just yeah I keep saying that but it's just a wonderful experience with law yeah did your impressions of law virtually kind of match up in in real life? Um, I I think so. Like, but we spent so much time together online. I think, but I had a decent picture of how they were, and so then then we finally met. I'm like, but I was, yes, it's like look at you. You have you have the rest of your torso and your legs. It's so nice to know you don't just exist from the chest upwards. Um, <laughs> no, the wonderful, beautiful person. Uh, incredibly warm and collaborative. Yes, so that but that translated but online and in person as well. So when we last spoke, you were just making the transition from a cabaret performer to an actor. What's that emergence and that transition been like? <laughs> oh well, like I say it's been a long-term journey. It was very interesting that a lot of my acting work came actually during lockdown. Um I said one thing I forgot to mention during our last interview was that uh, there was another piece I had the privilege of working on a couple of years ago as an actor called Queer Lady Magician with uh, my collaborator, Creatrix Tiara, uh, which was also an experience where I got to be an a- be an actor rather than a set rather than a singer or a cabaret performer. It was a very very unique experience because Creatrix Tiara did write the part for me, the part of the villain Chadbury, um, who. That had a very cabaret energy, but didn't actually sing because he uh, wasn't good at very many things. But he didn't sing or do anything like that. But was just entirely an acting role for me. Um, uh, but yeah, then during lockdown, uh, I'd been uh, transitioning actually into doing a lot of Shakespeare work with a company called Circle in the Sand before lockdown, and then after it began, we actually transitioned to on- like online performances, which we kept up. For most of last year, um, which was wonderful, I said I be- became part of the theater, this theater company, completely by accident because someone dropped out of one of their readings at one point, and then a friend but had put up on Facebook, "Oh, but we have it. We you know, need someone to come and join in." And I was like, "Oh, but you know, but I haven't done Shakespeare for a couple of years, but I would love to do it." And just from doing that, they was invited back regularly and had the wonderful opportunity to be in so many Shakespeare pieces that. Uh, but that I've been wanting to do over the years, such as Merchant of Venice, the entire cycle of King's plays, such as uh, uh, Richard III and Henry the Fourth, Part One, Two, and Henry V. Um, and yeah, and since we came out of lo- since we came out of lockdown, I've been oh happy to be able to explore that a bit more and bring uh, yeah to be able to go for Shakespeare auditions and yeah just acting gigs and things like that. Um, I said, you bring the same, uh, hopefully I bring the same level of storytelling and acting to my cabaret work as I do to my, 
again, my air quotes, my legitimate theatre experience, but it has been interesting to be because to be able to explore not needing to communicate through song. <laughs> Tell us about the Shakespearean role that you found the most stimulating and satisfying. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I have to say one one that I still remember doing, and I was very but I'm surprised how good it felt was playing Benvolio in Romeo and Juliet. Now, for for people who don't know the plot of Romeo and Juliet, Benvolio is one of Romeo's best friends alongside Mercutio, who's the big, big showy but role who has the famous Queen Marb speech and then, but spoiler alert, gets to die in the, the Act 3 or Act 4 and is a big emotional turning point for the entire cast. Whereas Benvolio is the slightly lesser known best friend um, who is but uh, who is between Romeo and Mercutio, kind of the balancing force who tries to keep things between like, balanced between the both of them, but who but is constantly there through the first three acts of the play and has a beautiful monologue. Sorry, beautiful, yeah, beautiful monologue about after Mercutio's death, describing the events, which helps to wrap everything up emotionally before the before the plot changes. Um, and I was asked to do that last minute uh, because the, of, the story of my life thing, <laughs> someone couldn't do it last minute so I get asked to step in. Um, and so it was wonderful because I think it was a bit slightly bigger role than I'm but expected or that I'm used to doing and had like, but when I stepped into it, I was like, oh, this feels quite comfortable. Um, for, and just yeah, have, being able to have these moments of comedy earlier on in the piece and then to have this beautiful emotional monologue at, at the very end of the role, uh, which was just, it was, yeah, very exciting to do. And I was like, oh, that's, I wouldn't have seen myself in that role, but I, ooh, but I was just like, this was so wonderful to get the chance to do. Of course, the media years ago dubbed you as the Dark Prince of Cabaret. And as mm. you said, Creatrix Tiara wrote the villainous role for you in Queer Lady Magician. <laughs> do you feel like you've transcended being typecast as the villain? <laughs> I don't think so entirely. Um, I think oh, for an edition last year, I think I got called in for two, for two roles. One was the gay best friend and the villain of the piece. And I was just like, well, that's pretty much my entire range right there. Um, but I, but I don't know. I, but it's like, ask me in a couple of months and I'll get back to you. But, but no, I think I just still... I think I st- I, st- I like playing the villain because they're often the very but they're the most fun roles you can play. Um, but I think I've but I personally have managed to just stretch my abilities a bit so I'm not just me personally, but can but go beyond a little bit of villainy and kind of uh, don't want to say, but a super like the kind of superficialness of evilness and actually getting emotional truth and authenticity, if that makes any sense. Why do you think people are so inclined to kind of, you know, characterise you as the villain? Is it something you've encouraged? Um, hmm, that is a good question. I think it's because of my dark sense of humour and my dark sensibility. Like, my cabaret material does tend towards the macabre, such as the works of uh, Nick Cave and Kate Bush um, and Radiohead and the, the alternative side of cabaret. Um, and I think I've, I have leaned into the kind of, but the darker net, like my darker nature and, but, and because that's in cabaret, my interest lies, we're exploring the darker and the extreme sides of human nature. Um, but I, I think it's also because, 
me personally, the reason why I lean into the villainy side of it is because, yeah, often villains represent a freedom from societal norms in a way, not always necessarily in a positive sense, but they do generally have, but they don't care about being restricted by certain things and they have freed themselves in a sense from society's constraints, which is something that I think we all on some level secretly yearn to do, whether that's from, yeah, from society to be free from societal oppressions and societal expectations, uh, except villains don't, you know, will take that too maybe a a not-so-positive end, but they do represent some kind of wish fulfillment for a lot of us. Um, For me personally, I'm not sure why people see that in me particularly. I I don't know. I think because I can tend to play very... Well, in musical theatre, I've tended to play very intense characters, and I suppose there's a a bit of a crossover between villains and very intense emotional characters. Maybe that's it. It sounds like you find playing the villain quite empowering. Hmm. It is, but I I do, as I said, because they do represent some kind of fr- someone who, on some level, has yeah has freed themselves from the shackles of society, whether that is conventional morality, things like that. And so, oh, for example, with Trickster, one of my processes in preparing for it was learning as a learning as a person to actually actively take up space and try and claim lay claim to to a performance space and again for again my indented fingers ruling the audience and but keeping them under my dominion um which was but which i found out but is not necessarily in itself a terrible thing because in in performance and in cabaret in particular so the audience does want to feel that you are in control and that you have but that you that you, the audience is your responsibility as a performer and they want to feel taken care of to an extent. So if you are commanding them and ruling them and letting them know what's happening and but keeping them on a journey, they actually do like that. I said, if you take that too far and being too, I don't know, a bit too far and like try and that can end badly. But to some extent, I said, they do like that is a positive thing in performance, I guess. <laughs> do you miss cabaret? Oh, I, I, have and actually recently I have start started pre-production on a, but my next cabaret project which is tentatively titled Dark Prince. Um, so hopefully I will be making depending but depending on you know our but situation in the future. Hopefully I'll be making my return to the cabaret stage soon. Tell us a bit more about the Dark Prince. It sounds exciting. Oh, <laughs> uh, so this show. Um, te- uh, I'm not going to say it's a spiritual successor to Trickster, but it's a show that I've been, I've written and I've rewritten over the past three or four years. Um, and then, but for various reasons, I've never taken the next step to produce it before this year. But kind of, but to me, but is, is taking a catch up to where I've been and ha- what kind of performer I am now in the five, four or five years since I last produced Trickster. Um, and it's just, at this point, it's just, no, is but exploration again of the music I love, which is but things like Patti Smith, David Bowie, uh, Nick Cave, Kate Miller Heike, the Dresden Dolls, all of my classic favorites. Um, yes, and just expl- and kind of also all all pieces now I think have to reckon with the new world that we're living in. So I think is but also a little about coming a little bit about coming to terms with what's happening with us all now. <laughs> 
How exciting, a cabaret interpretation of Bowie. Tell me more about that. Oh, well, I think it's been, Bowie has been a very, very popular subject in cabaret because, of course, his repertoire is so big, his career was so extensive, there's a lot that there that's ripe for interpretation and reinterpretation. Um, oh, but the, the piece that I'm reinterpreting is uh, Cat People, but brackets putting out the fire um and at this point is going to be combined doing a mashup as the children say with patty smith's because the night because i've i've listened to both of those songs together and musically and lyrically there are themes together that just not the same but they kind of link up in a kind of but in a very beautiful way and so i was hoping to find a way musically to bring them both together so i'll hopefully be working with a musical collaborator soon to make that a reality which i'm very excited about i was actually singing but singing um the music just before our interview and i was thinking oh this feels so good to sing and i can't wait to be able to do it for people Fantastic. Well, it's so wonderful that you're juggling so many projects and so many different genres. Bradley Storer, thank you so much for chatting with me on 3CR. Oh, thank you so much again for having me. Maybe I'm the afterglow Cause I'm with a band, you know Don't you hear the laughter on the way down Yes, I am the anchor man. Dining here with Son of Sam Hear too much to chat of on the way down Gonna meet a great big star Gonna drive his great big car Gonna have it all here on the way down The way face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook.